0: your bibles which i hope you do open up to mark chapter 12 we're going to start in verse 13 this morning mark 12 we're going to read verses 13 through 27 at least that's the the passage we're going to cover today and then uh, we'll get into the word but as you get there i want to kind of remind us where we were last week hey last week jesus had a conversation and a little story time again told a parable to the pharisees and, and everybody else that was there listening and as he was telling the parable of the tenants, as it was called, other times it's called the parable of the evil vine dressers, either way, he was telling the story about how Israel and its leaders, the tenants of this, this vine, the, the vineyard, rejected God, rejected God's messengers and God's prophets, and ultimately would reject the Son of God. Now, but that being told within a parable type setting, the Pharisees understood, right? The Pharisees perceived what Jesus was telling them. Once again, the Pharisees got angry at Jesus and once again were conspiring to see what they could do to even arrest him. But because they were afraid of the people, they walked away. But that didn't stop them. So here Jesus is. Remember, he's in Jerusalem. He's finishing out his earthly ministry. And now three times, the Pharisees, Sadducees, all the political and religious elite are going to come at him with everything that they've got. So they're going to come at him now back to back to back with three questions. Two of those we're going to cover today. And the third one we'll cover next week. But three back to back questions about how to capture Jesus. You know, in their mind, in their heart, they want to capture him and trap him, do whatever they could to get him to trip up to so they have cause to arrest him and get rid of him and eliminate his ministry because they're just done right in their minds. And so that's what we're going to look at today. In two different circumstances, question one by one group, question two by another group, and then question three next week by an individual that we'll talk about then. But let's read together as we get into this, and we'll kind of break this down to make this, you know, really come, come to light. So again, Mark 12, we're going to cover verses 13 through 27. We're going to start by reading verses 13 through 17, and then we'll, we'll jump into it. So read along with me, starting in verse 13. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion. For you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? Verse 15. But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one, and he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. So we're going to stop there, and we're going to look at this question here. Question number one of three. So what does it say? They sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. So again, we're seeing two groups here come together. Ultimately, political opponents. You have a group of Pharisees and a group of Herodians. Political opponents, specifically. Because remember, we talked about this long ago when we talked about them before, but the Herodians were a Jewish sect of people that supported Roman occupation and Roman authority. They were okay with it. That's the title, Herodians, Herodians, okay? And according to Luke 20, verse 20, it says, so they watched him, speaking of the Pharisees, and sent spies, okay? Because what did Jesus just get done doing? Revealing their hypocrisy, revealing their lies, right? Through the parable. And they perceived that. And so what the Pharisees decide to do now is, let's send spies, along with some of the Herodians, to see if they can entrap Jesus. But who were these spies? They were just disciples of the Pharisees. So what I'm thinking is it wasn't the, the ones that heard the parable and walked away. They said, well, we can't approach them again. So we're going to send other people in our place, representing us, and then we'll see what happens. But they come with a question. And the question basically is this, is it lawful, to pay taxes to Caesar or not. So I know you're coming to church today. You're going to worship the Lord. And here we are. We're going to talk about paying taxes. Sound good? You with me? <laughs> Something we want to do, right? All right. So, but that's the question. But you can see now, they know who Jesus is. Jesus is a teacher of God. They, they flatter him with words about who he is. They know who he is. He's answered all the religious questions. He's answered all the scriptural questions. He's answered every question they've brought to him at this point relating to faith and God and scripture. No question about it. So you see the next tactic? Well, if we can't get him on religion, if we can't trap him there, how about we trap him with politics? That's not going to work, and we already know that, but we'll get into the story anyways. So the question is, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should these Jews pay taxes to Rome or not. So let's take a quick look at what this tax is. The tax is actually known as a poll tax. And in short, a poll tax is simply a tax recognizing the authority of Rome over Israel. It's a tax to recognize and pay allegiance and homage to their ruling authority. That's really what it is. And so here's the question before Jesus should we pay these taxes? And so if Jesus answers yes, he's supporting the authority of Rome and therefore claiming that publicly in front of who knows how many people could potentially lose all of his followers. You see how that's setting him up? If Jesus says yes, pay your taxes, respect Rome with all authority to Rome, Jesus is going to lose all of his followers. If Jesus says no, He's going against the Roman authority and Roman law and therefore what? Inciting rebellion against the ruling authority over Israel and now they're thinking, ah, now we get the the politics involved. We get Rome involved and we'll get them to see how much of a danger this guy is and they can get rid of him as well. You see their mindset and what they're trying to do, but you see how they kind of try and build him up, they flatter him a little bit, you know, giving him all these nice words, but can you really flatter Jesus, the one who knows scripture, thinking they're flattering him, but I can, I almost want to believe, I, I, I just wish this was in there, this is kind of what I do, I kind of place my own wishes within scripture, and, and just wish he would just, had said this scripture openly to them, but I almost want to believe Jesus used Proverbs chapter 29 verse 5 against them, It doesn't say that, so bear with me here. This is Cameron talking, wishing. But what what does Proverbs 29, 5 say? A man who flatters his neighbor spreads a net for his feet. You almost wish Jesus just would have said that right there. Look, you can try and tell me all the good things about me you want. You can try and build me up, build up my confidence. You can flatter me all you want. But I know what Scripture says. You're laying a net. You're trying to trap me. Jesus knew that. But they pursue anyways. So in short, what's Jesus' reply? Pay your taxes. We could stop there. But we know it's worth a little more conversation, right? But that's essentially what Jesus is saying. Render unto Caesar what is Caesar's. If this coin that you showed me, this denarius, has Caesar's face on it, his inscription, therefore it belongs to him, therefore give it to him. Give him what is his. And so if we stop there for a moment, and we'll, we'll cover the second half in a little bit. But Jesus says, pay your taxes. But here's how he's twisting the answer on them. He's not just answering the question in regards to what should we do or not do in regards to the law. The beautiful thing of what Jesus is doing right now and how he's answering their question is he's turning it into a conversation about authority, authority. Who has authority over your life? What did Jesus just get done proving? When they asked him, who gives you the authority to do the things that you do? Because what did Jesus just get done doing? Clearing the temple. Right? Cleaning house. And he answered their question about his authority and who he was. And so he turns this question now on them in regards to authority rather than just paying the taxes. So he just answered the Pharisees regarding his spiritual authority. Now he addresses political authority. So he basically says, in short, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's. Respect the authority that God has placed over you. This is why scripture says very clearly, probably something you've read a lot lately in the season that we're in. Romans 13, verse 1. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Please understand, we all have the hardest time really grabbing onto that verse. At least I do. I'll I'll admit my fault. I have a hard time sometimes grabbing onto that verse. Because sometimes I just want to say, God, really, him? You put that person in authority to rule over our, our state, our city, our nation, or whatever it is? Really, God? Why? Please tell me why, just so I can understand and move on. But he doesn't have to answer me. He doesn't have to tell me why. It's part of his plan that God places every single individual, no matter what position they're in, at what level they're in, especially politics, that we have any room to argue. It doesn't matter because God placed them in that position for a reason. And what are we told to do? Be subject to our governing authorities. Respect them. Honor them. Is this tugging on anybody right now? Honor those. Peter, an eyewitness to this conversation with the Pharisees and the the Herodians, would write later on in 1 Peter chapter 2, Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Now, if I can put that into our lingo, honor everyone, love your neighbor, fear God, honor the mayor, honor the governor, honor the president, honor your members of the House of Representatives and the Senate, honor them, honor your parents, honor your teachers, honor your employers. Do we need to go on? Anybody in authority over us that have been placed in that position, we are to honor and respect, period. So this is the first half of what Jesus is saying and what he's answering. Render unto Caesar that which is due to Caesar, but God. (laughs) Now, I I put that in there because we got to cover the second half of Jesus' answer. Because what we have to realize is, yes, we are citizens here now, in the state of California, we are to honor and respect our governor and our mayor and, and other representatives in our state and in our cities and our counties. But God, placing those people in authority over our lives, we cannot forget who placed them in authority over our lives. Therefore, who is due the higher honor of our honor and respect? You guys tracking with me? We honor God. And that's exactly what Jesus said. Render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that belong to God. Well, what do we have other than taxes and our finances that we give back to the government? Do we give to God? I would hope every single person could raise a hand right now because who belongs to God? Everybody do this. Point to yourself. Everything about you, who you are, your mind, your heart, your soul, your entire being belongs to the Lord. Why? Because he made you. He created you. You are his. He purchased you with the blood of his son on the cross. We belong to God. And if our heart is the Lord's, if we've given our life to the Lord and we are a follower of Jesus Christ, then we have dual citizenship. Here now on the earth, In California, in Lake Elsinore, or Menifee, or wherever you live. But also, as we are temporary citizens of this place, we have citizenship already guaranteed to us in heaven. We're dual citizens, amen? And so, because of that dual citizenship, Jesus says, and to God the things that are God. So what belongs to God? All of us. Let me run through this really quick. Let me remind you, I know we don't have a note section. We don't have things up on the screen. If you guys want all the verses, remember you guys can download the notes later when I post the video. Go to the website. You can download the notes. Get all the scripture, okay? So I'm going to go through a lot right now, so don't feel like you've got to tear up your hand to try and write them all down. Okay? I can send you my notes, or you can download them later. I just want, want that to be a reminder. So what belongs to God? First, Genesis 2, 27. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And man became a living creature. He created us. He gave us the breath in our lungs. So when everybody does this right now, that's God's breath in you. Isn't that a beautiful way to think about it? You woke up this morning. God gave you the breath in your lungs. Blink your eyes. Can you see? Hey, can you wiggle your ears? No, I can't either. But touch your ears. Okay? Everything about you, what you do, the breath in your lungs, because God made you who you are. Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 7. And the dust returns to the earth as it was, and the spirit returns to God who gave it. So God gave us breath, and when our time here is done and we expire, dust we return. And the spirit, the breath that God gave us goes right back to him. I love that. I love that picture. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 13. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Now there's a word in that verse I want to make very clear. Sealed. We were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. What is sealed means? Guardianship. Protection. Guardianship for what? Protection for what? For our life in eternity. Our life that belongs to God. We are sealed with his promise, his spirit, because we belong to him. It's a beautiful thing if you really get into this. And in like fashion, 2 Corinthians 1, verse 21 and 22 And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. So the same word sealed, same thing, guardianship and protection. But what is the guarantee? It literally means a down payment. Isn't that awesome? The spirit given to us is a down payment. For what? To be collected later because we're his so when our time is up he gets to take what's his right now it's just on loan it's a down payment for our life in eternity when we can get to spend the rest of our life with him in heaven and glory isn't that amazing that's what god is saying so everything about us belongs to him so yes render under caesar the things that are caesar's pay your taxes but you honor god and you give back to God everything that God has due, which is your life. And at that word, they marveled at him. Because they didn't say just yes, and he didn't say just no, and they had no way to entrap him. <laughs> I love it. I love the way Jesus answers things. So, they said, all right, well, we lost that battle. Let's try number two. Question number two. Let's read together in verse 18 through 23. Next group, and the Sadducees came to him, who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. The second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as a wife. Scripture's amazing. It already laid out in verse 18. They don't believe in the resurrection. And so here they come to try and entrap Jesus with a question about the resurrection they don't believe in. You see what they're, what they're trying to do? They're trying Anything. It's, it's, it's grasping at straws, last-ditch efforts to see what they could do. So question two of three is in verse 23. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? So they don't believe in the resurrection. Acts 23, 8 tells us that. For the Sadducees say there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit. So you can really see these religious leaders don't believe in resurrection, don't believe in angels, don't believe in a spirit. So their whole belief system is completely established on the law and the law only. And even more specific than that, the law of Moses and Moses only. They pretty much spent their entire being looking at the Mosaic law and that was it. Anything outside of that, they disregarded. Didn't matter. But they didn't believe in resurrection because they didn't see anything in the Mosaic law or the scriptures that they read that gave justification to a resurrection. So they didn't believe in it. So Jesus brings them back to scripture to show them as he's always done. So using the Mosaic law in what they do believe and marriage, which is what they do believe in. He brings them back to scripture. But here's what's interesting. Not believing in the resurrection, they therefore construct an eternity that mimics the present life. You hearing that? They don't believe in the resurrection. They don't believe in spirits or angels or anything else. Therefore, they construct an eternity that matches their perspective in the here and now. So Jesus is about to enlighten them as to the reality of, of life after death. So in verse 24 through 27, Jesus says to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. That's a tough answer. <laughs> he breaks it down a little bit more, but that's a tough answer to swallow. So Jesus very clearly uses what they rely on to disprove their question and whole belief system. He takes them back to Scripture. Now, for us, that would be Genesis chapter 3, verse 6. Genesis chapter, I'm sorry, not Genesis, excuse me, I apologize. Exodus chapter 3, verse 6. Now, but he doesn't say chapter 3, verse 6 for the Sadducees because chapters and verses didn't exist for them. That's for us. So he takes them and mentions the burning bush passage. We've all learned that in Sunday school, maybe. We know that occurrence when Moses meets God through the burning bush. And this is how Jesus reveals eternity and life after death and the power of God to these Sadducees. He refers to the burning bush conversation in Exodus 3 6. Because what does God say in Exodus 3 6? I am the God of Abraham and of isaac and of jacob why would god say i am regarding people who had already died i am their god if they're dead why would god say i am it would make perfect sense just to say yes i was the god of abraham i was the god of isaac and the god of jacob but he didn't say that he said i am their god So at the time of the conversation between God and Moses, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had been long dead. But he says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, which means what? He is the God of the living, not the dead. In Isaiah, now, that's all that Jesus uses because that's all they wanted to rely on, the Mosaic scripture. But let's look at some other scripture in the Old Testament that they had access to. That spoke to the resurrection, but they just decided to deny. Because they decided to be ignorant about it, they believed it didn't exist. Let that settle in for a moment. Because they decided to be ignorant about other scripture in the word of God, they didn't believe it to exist. Does that make it not true? No, of course not. Isaiah 26, verse 19. Your dead shall live. I could stop there. I mean, how much more clear do you want to be? Your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy. For your dew is a dew of light, and the earth will give birth to the dead. Daniel chapter 12, verse 2. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And in the book of Psalms, chapter 16, verses 9 through 11. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or hell. Or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. And at your right hand are pleasures. Finish it, church. Forevermore. So Jesus only uses a short passage in Exodus 3, 6 the burning bush conversation to teach them the fact that yes, there is resurrection. There is life after death, but there's also the second conversation with the Sadducees about the power of God. He said, this is why you don't believe you don't believe in the scriptures. You don't know the scriptures and you don't believe in the power of God. So we're going to get into the power of God here as we, Kind of bring this conversation to a close. And I'm actually going to use the, the, the portion here as we close out our segment of Jesus' conversation as we, we will use this to le- our, uh, usher in our, our time of communion together. And so, as we talk about the power of God and Jesus answers the Sadducees, he continues to talk about the resurrection. He continues to answer them in a very short way about what they should believe. What is in fact true and real. And it's something that really applies to us. Because if you're sitting here right now and you can all raise your hand, you don't need to do it, but you'd all raise your hand. And if I were to say, do you believe in life after death? Do you believe in the resurrection? Do you believe that one day you will inherit eternal life With God in heaven. And you might raise your hand to that. You might say amen to that. Hallelujah to that. And believe that in your heart. But yet there's so much to this conversation that applies to us now. And that's what I want to talk about. Because the second half of Jesus' answer is about the power of God. And so I want to read something to you right now that is often used as a scripture and reference to that that a lot of pastors and one I will use during funerals. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. A lot of times it's used at funerals. Because it is a very encouraging passage to encourage those who have just lost a loved one. Someone who has just passed on. And it's an amazing scripture that speaks to life after death and the victory that we have but i want to read that in regards to what we just talked about now it's not just a funeral verse just like first corinthians 13 is not just a wedding verse okay, they're meant every day for us and so in context of these conversations and these questions that jesus is answering about the resurrection about who we belong to in the power of god Let's read 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I'm going to read verses 50 through 57. So, in light of the answers that Jesus provided, listen to these words about how they refer to who we belong to, what the resurrection is all about, and the power that God has. 1 Corinthians 15 50 through 57. I tell you this, brothers and sisters, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Can we say amen to that. But does that give you an understanding as to what the life after death is that we're expecting? We can't picture it. Because flesh and blood does not inherit the eternal These mortal bodies will not inherit the eternal. We will be immortal. We will be changed. We cannot fathom what God has in store for us outside of what He reveals in His Word. And I can't wait for that day to finally see what here we can't fathom. We try our best to picture what eternity will look like, but we have no idea. We have no idea. But what we can hold on to is the fact that the God who made us, the God who gave us the breath in our lungs, the God who's provided everything for us, is creating something so spectacular and amazing, we can't even put it into our language. But yet we will spend eternity enjoying his presence. And if we can just continue to wrap our heads around that, when we worship when we sing to the Lord, when we serve God in all of our capacity and whatever that we do, whatever he calls us to do, those acts of worship is what we will get to do in his presence for all eternity. That is a promise. That is that guarantee sealed in us by the Holy Spirit. When we enter eternity, we will enter a new life altogether. Jesus said in his response to the Sadducees that we will be like angels. Sorry, we didn't read that together, but he says we'll be like angels. Let me clarify. We will not be angels. Because if you are spiritual in any sense, you are a Dodger fan. Sorry. Wow. I know. Sometimes, you know. Just give me a thumbs down. I will edit that. You watching, that'll be cut. You won't see that again. But I had to, I had to do that for my grandpa. My grandpa a Dodger fan. No. Anyway, Jesus said... Jesus said we will be like angels because who were we created in the image of angels no God himself so the only reason that we are going to be like angels is because like angels we will be immortal we will live in eternity and in the question that Jesus answered about marriage angels are not given in marriage marriage does not exist in eternity Marriage is an earthly institution that God has given to us. So when Jesus answered the Sadducees, when the dead raise, they will no longer be given in marriage, and they will be like angels, but only in the respect that we will be immortal, we will live forever in the presence of God. But we were meant to be and created to be in the image of God. Why do you say that, Pastor. Because of what Jesus prayed in John 17. In John 17, Jesus prays for you and me. And I love that. It's in Scripture, it's called His high priestly prayer. Jesus prays for us. And He prays for us by saying the words that, in praying for His disciples, the apostles, He's going to send out to change the world and establish His church. He says that those who will believe their word. So He's praying for us. Because if you're sitting here now and have a relationship with Jesus, through time you have come to believe the words that somebody else has given you through the word of God and have come to faith in Jesus Christ because you heard God's word. But in John 17, verse 20 and 21, Jesus says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's you and me. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Were we created in the image of angels? No. We're created in the image of God, and here Jesus Christ, God himself, prays for us to be unified like he and the Father are unified. Jesus died on the cross to save us from our sins and provide us eternal life through shedding his blood to invite us into His family, not into the angelic hosts. Did you hear that, family? To be invited into the family of God. Not just to sprout wings and play a harp sitting on a cloud for eternity. It's more than that. It's way more than that. But who is Jesus? Hebrews chapter 1 gives us a little bit of understanding as to how he is greater than any other name. Hebrews 1, 3 and 4 says he Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature and he upholds the universe by the word of what his power We're talking about the power of God and Jesus answers the Sadducees because they didn't understand the power of God Here Jesus is being defined as the one who upholds the universe by the word of his power After making purification for sins by dying on the cross, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. If the name he has inherited is more excellent than the angelic hosts and we are invited into the family of God to inherit his name, what does he think about us? I hope that brings you encouragement. I hope that brings you joy because you are so valued that he created you to become part of his family for all eternity. Not to be angels, but to spend eternity together at his table in glory. That's the power of God. I want to read something to you. It's a quote by somebody by the name of HDA Major. Let this resonate. He said, had the crucifixion of Jesus ended his disciples' experience of him, it is hard to see how the Christian church could have come into existence. That church was founded on faith in the Messiahship of Jesus. Can I say that again? That church, this church, was founded on the faith in the Messiahship of Jesus. A crucified Messiah was no Messiah at all if he was one rejected by Judaism and accursed by God, it was the resurrection of Jesus, which proclaimed him to be the son of God with power. If the relationship that Jesus had with his disciples and us ended at the cross, Christianity would not have endured, the church would not have endured for the last 2,000 years. It would have been wiped away. Jesus would have been just one more prophet that maybe today we'd have gone to visit his tomb, to remember this great prophet, this great teacher. But he is more than that. By the power of God, God raised him from the dead three days later. With the stamp, the guarantee, the sealed promise of the Holy Spirit on our life. So that by his power, we don't see death. We have victory over death, just like Jesus had victory over death. And to be welcomed into eternity into his family. That's the power of God. Romans 1.4 says and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord. If Jesus was not raised from the dead by the power of the living God, our faith, the church, the whole of Christianity over the last 2,000 years is useless. But it's not useless, is it, church? We exist today because of the power of God. We exist today because of the stamped Holy Spirit on our life, in our life, working through us that keeps us going despite everything else that's gone on for the last 2,000 years. It's not just the coronavirus. It's world wars. It's countries that have come into existence and left. Governors and empires that have come into existence and left. Other religions that have come into existence and left. But it's the power of God and the Holy Spirit that has caused the church to continue on for two thousand years and nothing 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 will stop the church from fulfilling its purpose that God designed from the beginning of time until he decides to take us home amen say it louder church amen that is our responsibility that is why we celebrate communion it not it's not just a liturgic legalistic thing that we do once a month to you know drink some juice and eat a cracker because well scripture says we're supposed to we're supposed to do that as a remembrance of the power of god in our life and who we were created to be to carry on the name of jesus christ And let as many people know as we possibly can about this hope, about this salvation, about the power he has over anything that could distract them and dissuade them and keep them from coming into a relationship with him. That is our responsibility. That is why we celebrate communion. Let me read one more verse and then we're going to do communion just a little bit differently today. And I'll explain that in a little bit. Back in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verses 13 through 17 which sums up and confirms everything that we've talked about this morning. But if there is no resurrection from the dead then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God. Because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise. If it's true that the dead are not raised, for if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ had not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. It should bother us that people still live in their sin when they have an understanding of Jesus Christ. That should bother us personally. If we do that, if we resort back to our sin, like a dog who returns to his vomit, and we just keep going back to our sin because it tastes good, which is an absolutely nasty, filthy example, but that is biblical. It should bother us. Because Christ died on the cross and raised from the dead three days later so you don't have to return to your sin. And it should bother us to see a world living in sin that should have that same hope and understanding that we have. So it's a challenge, church. What are we doing to make that known? Are we going to continue to wait for people to walk into this lawn on Sunday and hope they hear what we hear? Hope they come to understand what we come to understand. Or as I declared a few weeks ago, it's time to get back to work. It needs to be Christ over Corona. Faith over fear. We need to get back to work. We need to do what God has called us to do. And we can't do that just by coming here on Sunday, setting up some easy ups, sitting for an hour in the hot sun, and then going home and doing nothing with it. We've got to take more responsibility. I was convicted with that this, the past two days. As that, that was a message given to the youth, given to 13 to 18 year olds, but it, it, it affected me. It convicted me. Because the power of the Holy Spirit that I saw envelop some of these kids last night is the same Holy Spirit that envelops us. And just because we're a little bit further down the road in age, I'm afraid we're getting too content, too comfortable. Just because we're further down the road and we may know a little more scripture than some of these youth, we drop our guard because we feel protected. When in reality, we need to pick up that cross, pick up that shield, pick up that sword, and continue to fight the battle, which is to bring Jesus Christ to this community. To see Lake Elsinore all around this lake and go, These are our people. This is our mission field. This is who we need to reach. One conversation at a time. We've got to do it, it's our responsibility let's pray together church thank you Father God for this opportunity thank you Lord Jesus for your sacrifice that through the obedience to your Father destined from the beginning of time that you left heavenly glory come down and take on the image of man to usher in a new covenant, a gospel, the good news. So that we could see the error of our way, our sin. That apart from you, we can't do anything except fail and try again, fail and try again. Jesus, you set us free from that. Thank you for dying on the cross for our sins.